Welcome, everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for Saturday, November 20th. This is a rare and strange time, but the holidays are coming up, and so we wanted to get ahead of our recording schedule so you guys have some content from us to consume over the long weekend or break or whatever it is that you might be experiencing. Um, I was just I was just talking to Brian about how I have um, I find myself in computer transitional hell. I suppose is the best way to describe it. Um, I am the you know fortunate upgrader. Um, I've I've waited a couple cycles to upgrade my phone, and um, as as Brian and I have been waiting a long time, I also upgraded my MacBook Pro. And um, I first ordered my phone in September, and then through a number of fluky things, it ended up just arriving. Um, I think yesterday, actually. Um, so it took a long time. Uh, I believe my phone went back to China. It came back here because of all the supply chain nonsense. And anyways, um, even though I ordered my MacBook Pro probably a month and a half after my phone, they arrived on the same day. So I started the upgrade process and the migration process for both of these devices. And man, it is a shit show. Um, in some ways, I totally understand the whole iCloud you know, sort of warm cocoon, just put everything in the cloud and you don't need to worry about anything. Whereas that's not really my style. I tend to have, um, you know, stuff locally saved, stuff in Dropbox, stuff in 1Password, stuff, you know, in various storage receptacles. And as I've done this migration, not everything has come over. And um, especially on the new M1s, I don't know why, but like, it seems like a bunch of my apps are just not running. And maybe it's because they're the Intel versions. And so when you migrate Intel versions of apps over to the new chip, uh, you need Rosetta. I, I'm, I'm very confused, but needless to say, my setup today was totally fucked because of all the things that I've rejiggered to try to make this new setup work and it wasn't working. So mm. Brian, are you, are you having better luck? Uh, I have held off on on up, upgrading my laptop because I think didn't we talk about I, I end up using the laptop now only three or four times a month. Oh right, I actually right. end up I'm using I'm using a Windows laptop more right now than what? I am my but yeah. what uh, for gaming. Long, long story. Uh, actually, <laughs> half of it is for gaming. Yeah. Ah, mm -hmm. uh, okay. It's a longer story though, um, uh, unrelated. Uh, but yeah, just to uh, put a pin in this, whenever I. I've decided whenever I do upgrade, I'm going to do the the full fresh thing. I'm not going to try to yeah. even restore from my. Uh, <sighs> this is what I've decided. And stuff. Yeah. This is going to be my weekend, um, which is not what I preferred, but it just it feels like I need a clean start. And fortunately, the last time I did this, I did write down a bunch of notes for how I like my system to be set up. But I customize everything, and it takes so goddamn long to. Like, get my system back into a place where I want it to be. So, so we'll see, I'm going to jot down some notes and maybe the result of that will be, you know, a list that other people could like crib from if they want to. Um, but anyways, that's, that's, that's well, where we are. You know what? I think maybe I have the transition to talk to Benedict uh, real yes, quick here. Go for it. Um, I am uh, using the windows laptop uh, for gaming a lot because uh, you know, age of empires four is a hell of a drug. Um, and they don't have a Mac version for that yet, <laughs> but, um, mm. we wanted to talk to Benedict, uh, for a couple weeks now, because this will get into discussions of AR and VR and the metaverse and Benedict, uh, wrote a fantastic piece. I guess it was back in the beginning of October about metaverse, metaverse, metaverse. And, uh, Benedict, I, I'd like to just pick your brain for 15 or 20 minutes about, about this, about Apple cars and stuff. But, um, the thing that struck me about your essay, and I've actually kind of copped this sort of 
point a couple times subsequently on the show is that um, this is kind of obvious where, you know, buzzwords are buzzwords because no one really has to define them. But in your piece, you made the point that this feels to you like people in terms of the metaverse, it feels to you like people at the beginning of the nineties being in front of a whiteboard describing the information superhighway. Where do you think we're at in terms of the metaverse? Is it just the solution to everyone's problem, no matter what tribe you're in right now? Or do you think that there's actually some sort of coherent vision starting to come together? Well, so I think it's kind of interesting that we've had two sort of, for want of a better term, rebrands in that there's this whole thing to re redescribe, rebrand, reconceptualize crypto as Web3. And in many ways, I think rebrand, reconceptualize AR, VR as um, metaverse. And obviously, crypto is a lot further along than, than, than metaverse. Um, but it's sort of, but it basically says what you're doing is you're kind of trying to leave behind a limited vision. So this is sort of a universal vision. So if you hear squeaking, that's a 12 month old puppy sitting on yes. the back. Um, Sounded like. <laughs> if you hear an ouch, that's because she bit my finger again. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, you know, as one tries, there's, there's an old joke that for, from Voltaire that the Holy Roman Empire was neither Holy nor Roman nor an empire. Mm -hmm. And cryptocurrency is neither cryptography nor a currency. You know, and, you know, it's not a distributed database. It's not a payment system. It's not a currency. It's all of those things and lots of other stuff as well. And there's always been sort of a struggle of, well, how do you tell people what this is um, and what it could be? And when you go try and go from saying crypto to saying Web3, you're trying to communicate that, yes, it could be a store of value. Yes, it could be for payments. But really, these are distributed computing systems and that have some characteristics of sort of open as much open source 2.0 as, 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 um, as Web 3.0. And so you're trying to encapsulate and sort of describe a bunch of conceptual chips in what's possible. And... When you do that, which is also kind of what Tim O'Reilly was doing with, with Web2, was describing all the stuff that he saw in kind of the mid-2000s. In some ways, that sort of creates a vision as much as describes it, because it gives everyone a sense of, of what collectively you're pushing towards. Um, and so I think that's sort of what's behind some of what's behind Web3. Um, and I think it's also what's behind saying metaverse, because, you know, VR, AR obviously doesn't exist yet. I mean, it exists in a very limited sense in the way of your phone at something, but really exists in a set of optics that no one has yet. And that Apple might have solved, um, but no one outside Apple knows. Um, and VR, having been a dumb idea from the 90s that never worked, then suddenly started working because people realized we had the compute and the, the screens and the sensors and the chips. But it's the other half of it has been, well, what do you do with it that isn't a game? And you know, VR by default is sort of stuck as a subset of the games console business, which is, you know, it's not a bad business, but it's 200 million people. It's not 5 billion people, which is where smartphones Yeah, you are. wrote another another great uh, uh, piece about that, I think a year ago. It was right when the pandemic started, and you're like, this should be the moment for VR. Yeah, we're in the um, VR winter. We are in the VR right. winter in that we've got the great device. The Oculus Quest 2 is a great piece of hardware. It is a games device. There is nothing else that it's good for. And a lot of people, our, our Facebook has sold 10 million of them. Quite a lot of them are sitting in closets unused. There's a few other interesting things like kind of big screen and, you know, the fitness thing that within became. Um, but it's not broken out into everyone saying, oh, my God, we've got to have this. And the way that I always sort of thought about this was it's as though you'd seen a PlayStation 5 in 1980. And you would say, 
holy fucking shit, this is mind-blowing, this is amazing, this is going to be part of the future. And it is, but, it's, but games consoles are 200 million units. You know, it's a small industry. Um, it's half the size of Snapchat in terms of users. And so the puzzle has always been, how do you break out of it being, it's, a, it's for games, it's for industrial CAD, it's got for these interesting niche use cases and make it a universal product. And how would you describe what that universal product might be? Which kind of gets you to the, you know, my sense that this is sort of like a mood board. Um, for obviously, most people mm. won't, have read, won't, won't have read the piece I wrote. And kind of what I said was, like, imagine it's 1992, and it's kind of become apparent that actually maybe quite a lot of people are going to have a computer. And that was kind of a new idea in the late 80s. Like, actually, quite a lot of people might have a computer. And what would that mean? And you'd get your whiteboard, and you'd write words like interactivity and multimedia, and maybe graphical user interface, because people weren't completely convinced by GUIs at that point, and probably CD-ROMs and broadband and even VR, and you draw a box around it and you call it information superhighway. And you would imagine that this would be built by um, Sony, AT&T, Disney, Matsushita, Sharp, Panasonic, Siemens, Alcatel, um, Lucent, and Microsoft, Microsoft, and Microsoft. Yeah. So I actually have a report from a company called Telegeography from 1995, and they've got a table of the top 50 info communications companies. Isn't that a wonderful term? Info communications companies <laughs> by revenue, and because of course, because it's by revenue, half of the companies are telcos. Because telecoms is now is a $1.2 trillion, you know, telecoms is probably a $2 trillion industry now. It's a much bigger industry than technology in, in revenue terms because everybody on earth is paying money every, every month. So basically you've got AT&T and Deutsche Telekom and Panasonic and Siemens and Alstom and all these sorts of engineering companies. And micro, Intel is on the list. Microsoft isn't on the list because it's too small to be in the top 50. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, never mind they don't have Netscape on the list. They don't have Microsoft on the list of top 50 technology companies. <laughs> because at that time, they, you know, it's just like that sense of the conceptual shift in how the world was going to change that just wasn't captured by that. And the reason, the problem I have with talking about Metaverse is, number one, it's basically a description of all the cool shit that might have happened in 10 years. Like everything that you think we might be doing in 2030 is on the list. And the other side of it is it gets talked about as though there's going to be one of them. It's as though everybody got together in a room in 1994 and said, we're going to announce a consortium to build the World Wide Web. It's like, but that's not how it works. Lots of people built stuff for the World Wide Web, but no one built the World Wide Web. And so now to say, well, this is what the metaverse is going to be, and we're going to build it, again, feels like a kind of a, basically like a category error of how to think about how the future happens and how to think about it gets built. So what, one so, question that I actually have about this, I'm sorry, Ryan, is yeah. the contrast in capabilities with, I guess, next generation technology and, and the web. And, and I think this will come up a little bit with uh, the second half of our conversation around Constitution DAO, because when I think about the, what the web was and what the web did to translate, you know, documents into digital form that were interlinked or hyperlinked um, relative to what's necessary for the metaverse and the skills and the capabilities and the tools and the compute and all of those. I mean, it's, it's a very privileged type of context 
to, I guess, deliver digital experiences. You know, and we had my my younger brother um, and two nephews on the show um, uh, last time or two times ago. And the rigs and the equipment and the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars that they've actually put into what they're doing to build for the metaverse feels far less accessible than mm. what was necessary to build for the web. So I guess my question is, you know, you said that, well, you know, the future is not really built the way that Zuckerberg claims to say it is, but the games universe kind of was. Right. So if you think about Weta or you think about um, Unity, you think about Unreal Engine, it feels like those actually had quite a bit of capital investment by experts, you know, who, you know, did digital art or 3D animation or graphics. And so, and the skills that were necessary to build that type of world and those types of experiences were much different than yeah. what allowed the, the web to, to be created. So maybe kind of two different axes, two quite different things to think about here. One of them is if you look at all the interesting stuff that happens in, say, enterprise productivity or um, consumer apps or indeed all the stuff that's happening in Web3, none of it's about, well, let's, everything would be better if only we had a bigger screen. So if you look at Notion or Frame.io or um, all those kinds of like new productivity tools, all those new ways of working, they're all basically about some combination of collaboration and networks and automation and workflow. This is what Figma is. It's you replace a Google Drive and some spreadsheets and an email thread and lots of things called version three, final, final version three. Well, it's sort of a software becoming into the same moment, right? And I know Zuckerberg the, the point, uses presence. Is, well, well, no, I mean, my, my point mm -hmm. is, if you think of what, all the, what is interesting in software design now, it's Figma and Frame.io and Notion. Mm -hmm. It's merging files and collaboration and discussion and workflow into a unified tool. And that needs a smaller screen, not a bigger screen. You know, I don't know why Figma would be better if it was in 3D. And Unless you're actually making 3D objects. Yeah, but nobody gives a shit about making 3D, 3D objects. I mean, have you like, seen the Web3 graphic style? Most of it is 3D objects. But Yeah, but that's not, but that's not the point. You know, mm -hmm. Instagram doesn't become better if, it's, if the Instagram window is floating in 3D space. It's still Instagram. Your yeah. email doesn't become better if the text is floating as a three-dimensional object somewhere you're kind of vaguely hovering in front of you. That's bullshit. You know, what you, don't, you, don't, what you want is to have less, fewer email messages. What you want is to turn 150 thre uh, message email thread into version tracking and workflow and automation and machine learning. Well, so hold on, though, because one of the whole premises that Zuck, I think, brings up and that Adam Asseri talks about is how a lot of Facebook's workplace stuff in the metaverse is better in the sense that you bring people together in a room or in a space. And I think this is actually one of the things that you're pointing to, which I think is accurate and true, which is how do you teach people who mostly know how to communicate on three-dimensional surfaces, whether it's email or, you know, whether it's drawings or, you know, charts. Well, those aren't three-dimensional. Those are two-dimensional. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Two-dimensional who are yeah. used to communicating through two-dimensional environments. And then you bring them into a 3D virtual space in which now they actually have the ability to communicate in, you know, 3D digital game-like expression. But none of us, or, or very few of us, have actually grown up with the ability to sort of think and express in three dimensions. And so what you're saying, I totally agree with. Like bringing a two-dimensional Instagram feed into a 3D environment really doesn't make a lot of sense. And yet it seems well, like, I oh, just add 3D just and it's going to be great. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the direction of travel is not that you have a three-dimensional email client. It's that you're not sending those emails. Sure. It's right. That's what I'm saying. You're actually getting into a room. Way. No, 
No. It's that you move to a model where those emesat communication doesn't need to happen or it happens in, in a more efficient way. I mean, look, if you look at what Figma does or Frame.io are doing, the, you, you, this, the transition is you used to have a network drive with a bunch of different drafts of your, your deliverable. And then you had a Google Sheet with 45 or 450 rows of comments at this time code, change this frame and color correct that object. And then you've got an email thread between 50 different people talking about it. And frame.io moves that into workflow so that you're not managing all of those different emails and copying and pasting stuff from the email into the Google Sheet and then paging through the Google Sheet and scrubbing through the video to get to the right frame. And say, well, if you make that three-dimensional, it'll be better. It's bullshit. None of that requires, so, you know, you don't improve that by making that three-dimensional. You improve that by stopping people having to copy and paste from an email into Google Sheet and have that in, happening in one interface. And yes, hey, maybe you could put it in 3D as well, but that's just completely set, a completely different way of thinking about what problem you're trying to solve. And I, again, when, you, when I look at the whole workplace thing and say, well, now instead of you talking to somebody in text, you'll talk to somebody in three dimensions. Yes, but I don't. The purpose here isn't to talk to somebody. The purpose here is to communicate that frame 872 seems to have a glitch on it. That's not solved. You don't make that easier by saying, hey, let's grab a 3D room. In fact, you probably don't want even to go onto Zoom. What you want is to have a little bit of structured data tagged onto that frame so that the video editor can go in and find that frame and fix it. The last thing you want to do is schedule a fucking call to talk about that frame. Never mind, make it a 3D call and have to put some goggles on so you can do it. So, so I, just, just understand, uh, and then I want to bring up the folks from Constitution DAO. You know, is is what I think I hear you saying is that you're skeptical about either Zuck's approach to building the metaverse in that it's sort of you know centrally run out of Zuck's you know mind, and or you know how skeptical I am about the whole idea that <laughs> this revolution is all about having meetings and friggin' VR. But go on. I, well, yes, but I guess what I also hear, or what I thought I heard Benedict saying you know, earlier, you know, was that what Zuck is missing about the way in which these tech revolutions happen is that it's a more sort of diasporatic, spread out, um, you know, way for these, you know, I don't know, things to happen in fits and starts. And it rarely happens in sort of a centralized fashion where it's like, oh, the information superhighway is the thing. We've got, all, you know, like Nokia had these like great, great concept videos back in like the, the mid aughts, you know, that portrayed augmented reality and all this other stuff. And yet they're more or less irrelevant today. So in a well, similar so, way, uh, so I think there's, uh, there's two different things. There's two different mm -hmm. issues here. One of them is, you know, well, three, three points. First of them is metaverse is a very vague catch-all term for everything cool that might happen in 10 yeah, years. Totally. And many of them probably will happen. Just not necessarily like that, which is my, the point of my comparison with the information superhighway. Yeah, mm. we are all doing interactive multimedia over broadband networks in graphical user interfaces. Right. Just not like that. Yes. Um, not on television sets controlled by AT&T and the New York Times. <laughs> um, so that's one thing, which is, you know, it's this very vague, fuzzy, hand-waved sense of what it will all be and how it will all get built. I think the other, which I think is a much more specific point, is I think Web3 is a vastly more interesting way of thinking about how you would build software. And something like Figma is a vastly more more interesting way of thinking about the way you would build software than just saying, well, we'll make it 3D, and that's the next generation. I don't think it is. I think the next generation is changing how it works and what it's doing, not changing the UI. I think the UI changes to follow what it's doing. Got it. You know, whether okay. that's a DAO or whether that's workflow or network or something, 
but it's not taking whatever brilliant idea you've had and saying, and we'll have a three-dimensional interface. We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. One password. One password combines industry leading security with award winning design to bring private, secure, and user friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. One password secures every sign in to save you time and money, any device, any time. One password lets you securely switch between iPhone. Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get Get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. Onepassword.com slash ride. Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free, whole-body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com slash men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men, and enter promo code RIDEHOME. Okay, so let me let me build on this and try to make a, a, a an elegant transition and bring Julian up here, um, Kyle, we've got Dan, and we've got Munam. I'm not sure if we've got some other folks from the Constitution Dow, but one of the things that you just said, Benedict, I thought was very interesting and worthwhile to like bring into this larger context, which is if you imagine Figma or a Figma file to some degree, and this is very, very messy, but if you were to imagine Figma as being a tool for DAOs in that everyone can sort of roam around, everyone has a cursor and they can add, you know, sticky notes or they can, or I'm, I guess I'll speak to my personal experience recently where I did an offsite and I used FigJam, which is Figma's kind of diagramming tool. And, you know, we had multiple people all actually in the same place kind of working together to come up with, you know, a, a coherent, you know, strategy or vision that normally you might have done on a, you know, conventional whiteboard, which, you know, has limitations, et cetera. And of course, this process could have happened remotely. It happened in person. But in a, in a way, that type of collaboration, real time, additive, where you can see everything else that's going on, it's transparent to you. What I kind of like about this idea is to imagine FigJam as almost like a tool that is perfectly timed for what's going on with DAOs in the sense that you got a lot of people coming together. 
They go into a space where maybe they do or don't know the other participants. They're all working towards a shared goal and there's visibility and transparency in ultimately what it is that's trying to happen. Now, I think Benedict, your point is about, well, it's, it's really about the work that's going on and what's being done and how it's being done relative to, you know, if this is in 3D or not, like that's irrelevant and that's besides the point. And it's kind of a distraction that's precipitated by current, you know, computing capabilities that are new and novel and shiny, but isn't the point. So that's why I wanted to actually bring um, the folks from Constitution Dow up here to talk about their recent project, what they did, how they brought it together, the fact that they used, you know, Discord largely to coordinate in Twitter, and I'm sure a number of other tools. So Julian, um, you guys want to come, Munam, you want to come up and sort of tell, uh, introduce yourselves and then tell us a little bit about, you know, this crazy week that you guys have had. Sure. Uh, happy to say hello. I'm Julian, um, one of the core contributors of Constitution DAO. Um, a lot of people up here, so I'm not going to do that much speaking, but um, we should probably pull up even more folks uh, from the team. I see a bunch of them in the audience. Yep. I'm happy to happy to pull some of them up or text you or something. I will add but you as the, a co-host. Uh, the, the, other, the other thing here is, you know, with Benedict, what you were saying about how things don't really, um, you shouldn't just try and slap sort of the latest, greatest thing onto it, like makes things in 3D, but sort of have the exact same thing and just make it 3D. I think that's the same thing with, with Web3 or crypto or on the blockchain. It shouldn't just be blank, but on the blockchain, it should be something new that's enabled by these technologies. So I think that sort of what Constitution now is, is a part of that, uh, doing something different that wasn't necessarily possible before or would have been really hard to manage before. And yeah, I, uh, I, you see a lot of people trying to do X, but on the blockchain, or if you look at NFTs, like digital art, especially, it's kind of just like taking art and putting it on the blockchain. Um, you know, it's, there, it makes a lot of sense to have sort of ownership of digital assets, but at the same time, it feels like that's just the beginning. Uh, there's a lot more creative things that could be done beyond just putting something, you know, on the blockchain that, that wasn't before. Well, yeah. and go ahead. Oh yeah, uh, I just wanted to say like by the way, this is Dan. NF- oh hi, I'm Daniel. By the way, I Thanks. do social stuff for Constitution DAO. Um, so I think the whole like art on the blockchain aspect of NFTs is actually like very overplayed to some degree. I mean, it does work, but I think that unfortunately the media has picked up on this one sec like one use of NFTs or like the core usage of it and missed out on a lot of a lot like more interesting uses. So I just wanted to clarify that like. NFTs are not strictly art on the blockchain. I, I think the, the broader conversation, and to Benedict's point, and I think this is very relevant, at least where I'd be very interested to see this conversation go, is a little bit about how, you know, historically we do tend to take, you know, the previous medium or the content of the previous medium, we impose it or superimpose it on a new emerging medium, which we don't fully understand yet. The media, I suppose, you know, the, the press media um, has a tendency to try to describe things relative to what's come before and you lose a lot in that transition whereas the people who get it and are deeply you know ensconced in this stuff are seeing the new possibilities so for example you know as i was describing that fig jam example and what you guys have done with the constitution dow is like why do you need a, a corporation why do you need an entity why do you need to register in delaware why do you need to have all of that you know additional overhead when you can come together, put a bunch of stuff on the blockchain, have a set of smart contracts that set the agreements for the rules of participation and formulate a thing. And if the thing works, then keep going. If it doesn't work, then you dissolve it. And you didn't have to do all that extra work. So if, if you're in this space, 
then gravity has sort of shifted, you know, and all the mathematical formulas that you use to make sense of reality are slightly off and you can see it and you understand it. But people who are used to the way that the world used to work uh, will apply all their, you know, bureaucracy on top of it because it feels necessary um, because that's, that's how they know things. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I agree with what you're saying about NFTs as being overplayed and being more towards art, but that feels like a function of the press getting excited about something that they could explain about crypto because crypto is too abstract and it's sort of like money and it's sort of like a store of, you know, wealth or gold or whatever, but it's not really. And then people, you know, glaze over. And so help us understand how this constitution DAO came about. Like who was the person who was like, hey, you know what? The constitution's like coming up for sale for the first time in like 10,000, well, it's not 10,000 years, but like, you know, in a long time. And this is our shot. Well, wouldn't it be so, so cool if like we, the people actually owned this document, at least as a DAO goes. So walk us through that just so that we have a little bit of that background and that momentum and then see where that goes from there. Hey, everyone. It's Wenam Wasi. I helped out on the constitution DAO team primarily in running our discord and sort of helping with onboarding people. Um, Chris, regarding your point about sort of this platonic ideal where everything can be programmed ahead of time and can sort of work off of rules, um, you know, that, that's a vision that I believe in and that's a vision that I want to see happen. But for something like this, where we had such a small deadline and, you know, no idea how big this thing would get, we didn't have the luxury of doing that sort of thoughtful engineering and actually figuring out the rules. A lot of this was finding the best, most talented people we could who were able to, you know, um, contribute their time and then trying to figure it out as we go. A lot of the things that we didn't know were things that we did not know that no one knew um, because it's sort of the first time anyone attempted something at this scale. And the real challenge was not sort of the limitations of our tooling online, but was all of the real world, you know, meat space challenges. And I think the amazing thing about this team is that we, we very quickly, you know, ran into sort of friction and trying to push forward, reevaluated that, you know, came up with like an actual sort of structure and then, um, you know, ended up to the point where we got, you know, we, we got to the final destination, even if we didn't win, but it's put us into a position to keep doing cool things. And um, I'm sure everyone else can tell you from their perspective, but uh, a lot of it was just learning on the fly and, you know, trusting in each other to do a good job. I mean, so much of that is social. So much of that is about people and relationships. And at least my impression of DAOs is, is there is a degree of maybe internal cohesion and familiarity and relationships that already exist, but you guys pulled in what, 17,000 people in this. So how does that happen? So I think it started like very initially, he's very gracious and doesn't really take credit. But from what I understand, the first person to like talk about this in our circles was either my friend David or this guy, Austin. He sent a DM to this guy, uh, Jackson Dame, who's pretty big on Twitter. About, so we've had Jackson uh, on here before, actually. Uh, yeah, he talked about yeah. the Loop Project. Yeah, so I think he sent a DM to Jackson about buying the Constitution, and Jackson sent it to our group chat where we were like, oh, like, should we actually try to do this? Uh, so Austin sent that DM, I think, and we were already talking about it a little, but we were like, oh, we should actually like attempt to do this thing. And so then from there, it kind of... We had a meeting like the night, uh, like Thursday night, to talk about it, and it's the grew. When you say meeting, I think this is important because we understand meetings in a certain way. And, you know, they had meetings when they wrote up the constitution, but like, what was the context format? Were you in person? Was this remote? Was this on discord? Was this clubhouse? What kind of meeting was this? I think it was a zoom meeting. Yeah. Very relatable. Yeah. Someone just sent a DM to a group chat on Twitter and was like, 
uh, guys, uh, we're having a meeting to talk about, like, maybe we might actually, for real, try to buy the Constitution. <laughs> but I'll, I'll just say that this was pretty pretty laughable um, at the time, you know, in terms of, like, I was I was totally on board, but it was also hilarious and not very feasible. Um, and that was kind of what made it really in intriguing, and I think why a lot of people showed up. I think we had, like, 15 people who showed up, and then it kind of just grew from there. That's actually, by the way, this is Brian, um, uh, the co-host again, but uh, I'm just curious, and this is, uh, you know, a really simple, <laughs> dumb uh, journalism question, but um, are you guys, I mean, are you feeling bummed now that you didn't win it, or was this experience so, like, <laughs> nothing that you could have even prepared yourselves for that it is sort of like I said on the show, it's kind of <laughs> the dumb thing of it's the friends we made along the way. Are you bummed now, or are you just amazed at what you achieved to even get as far as you did? Hey, Brian, this is Jonah. Uh, I contributed a lot with crypto onboarding uh, to people that were new to crypto. Um, you know, one thing I'll say is in the moment, things really hurt. You know, a group of us got together uh, to discuss, uh, to, to watch the auction, and it really hurt to, you know, have all this going on, have all this energy and momentum, and we raised all this money and things failed. Uh, you know, we kind of were there in shock for a few minutes and then started talking about all the, the major wins we had. Uh, you know, one of those major wins were a third of the wallets that were involved in uh, contributing had never contributed, uh, had never had any transactions on Ethereum before. So we brought in, you know, around 5,000 people that had never used Ethereum before to using and understanding this technology. We got the word DAO in, you know, the on the eyes and ears of people that were familiar with crypto and blockchain. But uh, I think a lot more people are starting to resonate with this as a real-world use case that they can really understand and they can wrap their head around. You know, I think a really great example of this that I heard recently was I was listening to a tech podcast and someone described an example of a DAO use case of an old historic movie theater in a town that was shutting down, but maybe the community could get together uh, and very quickly fundraise to, to get to, to be able to save that um, historic building. So, you know, it sucks that we didn't win. Uh, but I think everyone's really excited about where we can go from there. And we're not done by any means as a DAO. We are exploring that, with the people. <laughs> I, I was going to say, that that was my next... Sorry to interrupt whoever that was. That was yeah. literally my next next question. So maybe you can answer that. Um, uh, are there plans, are there discussions being actively had right now to be like, all right, well, we're already here. We have all this energy behind us. Let's do something else, even if we, we swung and missed on this first pitch here. So well, the first... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sure. go ahead. Well, I was just gonna, John. I was just going to add to your um, the color that you had around. So I'm uh, Mackenzie. I um, was a um, core contributor. I helped with museum partnerships, legal structures, and um, some internal ops. But I, I think the the thing that was most touching for me was that um, when we were we had organized some people in person in New York um, with Robbie, who was actually doing the bidding for us. So Robbie, uh, Nicole, and Alice were representing us in another room, and the rest of us were watching a live stream right outside that room. And after the bid ended, after the auction ended, uh, and they came out, everyone stood up and gave them a standing ovation. 
So j mm. just a sense of like mm. the, the emotion basically behind that and just how much um, the team really came together and, and just the genuine infection I, affection I felt toward like people I had never met on the internet, you know, never actually met before the, the five days and, and met for the first time that Thursday hours before the bidding. Um, let me, let me, let me shoehorn one real quick specifically for you, Mackenzie. Uh, when you, when you reached out, I, I assume you reached out to Sotheby's uh, to to get you know someone to actually be your your bidder there in the like were they receptive did they uh, were they gung ho were they helpful to you what was your relationship with actually you know getting someone on the stage to you know raise their hand for you for the bidding yeah so I mean essentially we reached out to Sotheby's pretty early uh, in, in the process and the reason we did it really early is because there were a lot of questions around. What they would accept as funds. This was a following our Twitter uh, account until like Thursday, uh, right? Like it was just such a wild yeah. time, and I was so focused on. But Anisha, I think, was very involved in a lot of those conversations. Um, I was definitely not uh, the single point person, um, either with like Sotheby's or anything. But I did help a lot with um, press and like a, a bunch of our like external and internal comms. Um, my understanding is that Sotheby's like definitely was receptive to having us, you know, bring someone on board and do our bidding. And we've interacted with a number of individuals from Sotheby's that have been really, really kind to us. Um, I think something that was really cool to see aside from our, like, you know, the relationship with like constitution Dow and Sotheby's was even when we were watching the auction, um, I don't know who else may have noticed this, but um, when they kind of had the prices laid out as the bids were going up um, in different forms of currency, Ethereum was also on that list. Um, and so they were like, like I remember seeing for um, some Banksy pieces that were being bid on, they would announce the price in both USD and in ETH. And they mentioned that this is the first time that they were doing that. Um, and I thought that was really, really, really cool. I can't say that it was because of us um, or, you know, Banksy or like, you know, other such crypto um, pieces or crypto groups like uh, coming into like the, the Sotheby's like world. Um, but I thought that was really exciting to see. And Mackenzie, another another thing while you guys were on the ground in New York gathering, which I'm, I wish I was there. Um, a bunch of us were also like on a video call. And I think Dan mentioned earlier that, um, one of the places that this idea was initially, um, surfaced and kind of like put in a group chat. Um, Dan and I are like in the same group chat called the gas station. And a bunch of us actually were all watching the auction on the live stream in a group like zoom session and to kind of like have that support from like the community who was, you know, part of the core contributors were, were on that call, but also like a bunch of our friends were on that call and we were kind of all watching in anticipation together. Um, and I think that was like really, really special too. What, it, what, it, like what I'd love to hear from you guys a little bit is what, what, it, what this means to you personally, um, in terms of, I don't know, I'm sure many of you have, you know, had different types of success in the past, um, and have experienced, you know, that type of visibility, but it, it really felt for a moment, you know, the broader sort of, you know, Twitter ecosystem had really sort of emerged into the mainstream and that this thing had sort of, you know, obviously taken on a life of its own. And the story was so significant. And 
I, I suppose, like, I don't, I don't want to center on me, but to, to draw a, a parallel, back in 2004, when we were working on the launch of Firefox, um, I contributed to the design of this two-page ad that went in the New York Times to announce Firefox to the world. And the reason why it was significant was because that ad had been crowdfunded by nearly 10,000 um, contributors of very, very small amounts of money. You know, this is in the era of Barack Obama, you know, fundraising and, you know, using micro donations to power. Well, previously it was the Howard, De- Howard's, Howard Stern, Howard Dean campaign, which then led to Barack Obama being able to do use micro donations as well. And it's been a while, I feel like, since we've actually had something that was so maybe, mm, commonly relatable. I mean, buying the constitution is something that people all over the world like have a familiarity with and a connection to. And so for you guys to put this out there in the context, in the context of web three, in the context of a DAO, in the context of, I would almost say like the, the culture of web three, like that is, I suppose that one of the more significant things that comes out of this, like the culture of open source needed to come out to the world in 2004 to say, Hey, this is how we work. This is how we operate. And we also have financial power. So can you guys speak a little bit to maybe how this feels to you personally? And, you know, maybe it's, you know, I don't want to like overstate the case, but, um, you know, you might have some sense of, of what your life was like, you know, before and how you thought you could change things before and how you feel about that now. So Chris, I would really recommend that you and everyone here take a look at the fundraising page, uh, because people left these incredible messages about kind of, well, what's the know, best way to get to that link? Yeah, it's uh, juicebox.money is the website. Okay. Um, so there's some incredible messages. We actually posted some on our Instagram as well, constitution underscore DAO. Uh, just of people, you know, and their relationship to this document and this country. And some of those relationships were very, very positive and some were, were negative. And I think part of what we wanted to do here is, you know, have the opportunity for people to relate however they felt was important to them. Um, you know, some of the best ones were, you know, stories about immigration or, you know, I'm going to give this to my daughter when she's old enough to learn about the constitution or, you know, stories of, of this document was very harmful to me and my community, but now I can have ownership over it and power over it. Uh, and I just think that that was really beautiful and meaningful. Uh, I know that, you know, in my family, I got to contribute and they're not really crypto native, but we kind of included our family's immigration story which is the name of my uh, grandfather's memoir. So highly recommend that everyone go read through that. That's awesome. Uh, There's some funny memes, but there's also some really incredible stories. Uh, I'd also just like to add uh, one more thing to that in that I think everyone from our team and our side became aware pretty quickly that this was a cultural inflection point. And um, we wanted to put our best foot forward because just as, you know, we were just a group of individuals trying to do something crazy, um, I think it really captured sort of the zeitgeist at the moment that um, there is possibilities for change and there is possible for more equitable institutions. Museums themselves are often considered pretty stodgy and unchanging. And a lot of them, you know, reached out to just try to learn what we were all about. And the most amazing thing was sort of on the day leading up to the auction, you know, a bunch of museums sent us like good luck emails. That wasn't something I don't think any of us were expecting. And it's sort of amazing to see, you know, some historical society in some states say, good luck tomorrow. I hope you win this. You're doing this for the right reasons. So we hope that um, this actually, you know, sets a precedent and a chance for different organizations to engage with, you know, the institutions that define culture. And, um, you know, some of these ethos around crypto, where it's just sort of, you know, the ultimate meritocracy can carry through to society. 
I think one, one thing I also want to add is just, um, I was pretty blown away by just how much, I mean, people have mentioned how much the community has rallied, rallied around us, but we, we wouldn't have been able to pull this off in such a short time period had we not been able to lean on existing partners. I mean, we worked with six or seven people, uh, different partners just to be able to set up the, the, um, payments flow and, um, and the legal partnerships. And I know Robbie is in, in the speaker audience and, and just like a huge, humongous shout out to endowment, um, FTX nice. and a number of other partners, um, just, just because of, yeah, just <laughs> incredible. I mean, just Robbie being <laughs> like sort that of the person that. actually visiting. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just incredible. And like, even after the endowment, um, or sorry, even after like the auction ended, like you guys at Endowment have been so involved and so ready to help us. So massive, massive shout out to you guys. And I, I know, I don't think anyone from FDX US is here, but um, on the day of the auction, we simply would not be able to um, even get to the point of being able to bid if it weren't for them. So they were a massive, massive help too. What else you guys is, are making uh, me blush. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it's truly such an honor to be a part of what That's you guys the whole have built point. here. That's uh, the point. Uh, uh, and, 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 you know, I think it really underscores the fact that um, you kind of need these partnerships in order to bridge the gap here. That for the things, the for, for translating the crypto industry into the modern culture, into the mainstream culture. We need institutions that are crypto native in order to come in and be able to provide the infrastructure for a group like Constitution DAO to actually be able to place a bid on Thursday night. And, um, and so, and that's why we built endowment. And so this was just like the, the perfect use case for what we've been working on. But, you know, without the energy and the, and the enthusiasm and the hard work of this like incredible core team and the community around it, like there's no opportunity there, right? So there's, there's really this very beautiful symbiosis that was just such a no brainer for us and the team at endowment. And, um, yeah, happy to sort of, you know, weigh in on anything that, that has to do with that compliance angle or with, you know, like auction mechanics or anything like that. What do you guys think is next? You know, and, and what else surprised you about this process that either was harder or easier or like sometimes well, you know, I a better just, way to say that, Chris, yeah. if, if there was something you could do differently, mm. if you had a second shot at it or the next time you do something, there like you this, go. what have you learned for someone else that maybe even is coming behind you to do something similar? What would you do differently? What, what's a big learning that you could take away from, from this whole experience? That third party uh, guarantees are a thing. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. There's yes. there's yeah. Also, yeah, that's true. Specifically I, I for option stuff. I think that the two week, like or the one week like end goal was good and like having like a solid end date in mind really like boosted the rate of the entire project. But I think having a two week away end goal might be just like a slightly more comfortable end date. And, like it got pretty tight, I think. I think that we also, given the time frame and just just given everything, we did in retrospect like a phenomenal job of getting all the moving pieces working. Um, but if I were to try to stand up a DAO in my free time again, um, doubling down on some of that structure and um, and certain like internal comms um, and having certain just like internal like structure in place um would 
be something that'd be. Can you can you unpack that a little bit? Because I think there is an impression about DAOs, or at least you know, maybe in the right. the general thing that where it's like a free for all, and it's like totally egalitarian, and you know everyone is participating in equal ways. But at some point, to move so quickly within a week to do the things you need to do, you also need to like delegate, have some structure, some organization, maybe even some hierarchy. So, what types of structures would you recommend people think about um, when approaching this this type of thing? Yeah, so I'd say like a couple of things. Like one, um, this is this is coming kind of coming from only my perspective. Um, I've been a part of like other DAOs in the past and have joined other like discords of DAOs. Um, so I'm kind of contrasting my experience there with Constitution DAO and I guess what I would like to see beyond any of those. Um, sometimes when you initially join a DAO, there is like a lot of like chaos and you don't really know where to start or how to contribute or where to go. Um, and different DAOs have kind of different, different gauges of how they want to structure things or organize things. Um, with constitution DAO, I think there, there was like, you know, that core set of contributors and we pretty quickly, um, kind of like sorted ourselves into different roles or things that we were kind of handling. Um, I'd say that we still maintain like kind of a flat structure as DAOs are known to sort of have rather than a hierarchy with one person in charge. Um, and I think that was really important. Um, that being said, like, you know, there were some people who were primarily focused on getting our website up and running. Some people were the mods. Some people were dealing with museum partnerships. I was handling a lot of like press comms related stuff. Um, and I think like more than there necessarily being like any kind of hierarchy, I think certain lines of communication, um, are really important to keep in mind. For example, one thing that I personally, um, was dealing with was as we scaled, what did we as a group want to communicate to our external community in terms of our messaging or statements that we put out as a collective that had to kind of be run by everyone. We all had to agree upon it. Um, and just having some kind of um, understanding amongst everyone about how we wanted to accomplish that, um, whether that's like by rules or by like, hey, we if if we want to like propose something, how do we want to like vote on it? Where is that going to happen? What kind of like majority do we need to have by it? What time frame are we working on? Um, I think these are all like really, really finer details. And some of them couldn't really be thought about in the time span that we were working with. Um, and we did like, you know, the best we could, but I think, you know, just for DAOs in general, those are all like internal things that it, it, they're easy to overlook. Um, but when you are thoughtful about them or when you are not thoughtful about them, it can have major ramifications one way or another. Can you can you actually go a little more in in depth about those specific things? Because I think those those mechanics are exactly the things that really separate. You know, as I understand these DAOs, you know, they sort of come together, and especially the things that are either on or off chain, right? So you talk about voting and governance, and this is a big piece of what you know the Web three world seems to be about. And so the social functioning of participation in these groups is something that feels a little bit more. I don't know. Um, not it's not esoteric it's actually quite essential but i think it's something that people don't have a lot of access to like it's the whole principle of of what web3 is is trying to do in a lot of ways by putting things on chain having their v visibility creating 
uh, I don't know, more fair participa participation engines for these types of things. So how does that work when you're trying to move very, very quickly and you need people to like vote? Is there like a time frame? Is there actually a system or a structure or tools? Or is it just kind of like, let's call it to like a verbal vote or like, let's get a bunch of like emojis on or emotes on this discord, you know, comment and we'll make a decision in the next 10 minutes. How does that work? So Chris, I think uh, a lot of this was exactly as you were saying, uh, emojis on a discord message. You know, there were yep. more important decisions that we got it, got together uh, on Zoom and discussed, but we were moving so fast. Um, I would say, like, for the core team, it almost felt like a tribe um, where, like, you know, we were all very working closely together, shared contacts, shared information, just go, go, go. Um, there's a concept I'd recommend so many in the group look into. There's great articles around it called progressive decentralization, where a lot of these ideas start in a one or a few places, and then you push as far as possible to say, how decentralized can you actually make it? Uh, so, you know, with, with our core team, we're obviously making a lot of decisions right now. Um, but our first priority, uh, of course, after we refund people that are no longer interested in being involved, is getting to a place where anyone in the community can become part of core and that we decentralize uh, to, to the greatest degree possible. Yeah. And, and to add to what, just to make sure you can hear what I'm saying. Can you, can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Cool. cool. Yeah. Just to, just to add to, um, to add to what um, was just being said there um, by, by Jonah, I, I think another thing worth noting is like how much of this is on chain versus off chain. Um, a lot of decisions, um, take place off chain, you know, like yep. as you're saying via emojis. Yep. Um, but even, even when you're doing a snapshot, you know, doing a snapshot with votes and it's tied to sort of a governance token, you still have most of the actual actions as a result of that on chain vote, um, taking place off chain a lot of the times and a lot of DAOs. Um, so it's not just like, you know, there, there's a smart truck contract and, um, everything executes based off of the, the outcome of a vote. For the most part, you have to trust that the snapshot vote um, actually leads to an off-chain action. And in our case, you know, we were buying a physical constitution, uh, a copy of the constitution, and we were doing all sorts of things that would be would require off-chain action. That really determined a lot of our strategy in terms of how we were building, the tools that we're using, and whatnot. So, as a uh, final addition, mm, there, that's a, yeah. a technology constraint, mm. and. You know, I hope as we build out this ecosystem, you know, the easiest thing a DAO can actually do from like direct action right now is send funds from the treasury uh, from a vote. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. The tooling is being built out for everything else. Uh, right. So it seems like, and I guess I want to just try to like, again, create a mental model around this that, you know, discord style, you know, emote or remote, or I guess like, yeah, reactions um, is almost a way of kind of sampling like for what does the community feel like of the community that is here, you know, or over some period of time. And then from that sample is like, okay, we have a sense that we can move forward with this. Maybe it isn't like everybody participating, but it's enough so that we have some sense of consensus and then we can move forward. And then when it comes to distributing yeah. funds or things where, you know, these are really critical, you know, like, you know, voting moments, then that's where you would actually do it, you know, on chain. And so that's a slower process. It's more deliberative, but people have the ability to actually contribute. Is that roughly the mechanics? Are there other mechanics that I'm missing? Yeah, that's thresholds could be important too. Uh, sorry, say say that again, Julian. Yeah. So so essentially thresholds. Uh, okay, not, thresholds. Not to, say, uh, not to say that we have I see. we have that now, but like you see in certain um, in certain DAOs and um, different circumstances, they have different thresholds that would require, you know, a certain number of votes total votes 
uh, or a certain percentage of votes voting yes, like for different things, depending on the, you know, uh, the severity of or the irreversibility of the decision being made. Right, exactly. Like the one way or the two way door problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Got it. One other thing I'll add here is that the the first moments where DAO is coming together are really critical in the eyes of like the regulatory landscape. And so mm-hmm. the presence of a token must also the, the, the prevailing legal opinion, and with the caveat that I am not a lawyer, but, but that we spend a lot of time on this, is that the prevailing legal opinion is that if a governance token is launched with its governance apparatus alongside the launch of the token, that you avoid a lot of the concerns around securitizing something because it wasn't just a standalone thing that was on markets first. And so when we think about what's next or what we need here in the space is we need places like Juicebox that have done amazing tooling around how to pool these funds to also you know, start to think about incorporating the governance mechanism alongside of it so that when a community says this is a governance token, they, they, they actually already have the tooling there. And they can point to the government and say, uh, you know, this has its ability to be a voting mechanism from the very start. Real talk. 52% of men over 40 experience some form of ED between the ages of 40 and 70. But it's always been a taboo topic. Thankfully, HIMSS is changing that by providing affordable access to ED treatment all online. HIMSS provides access to clinically proven generic alternatives to Viagra and Cialis, up to 95% cheaper with options as low as $2 per dose. The process is simple and 100% online. No uncomfortable doctor's visits. Answer a series of questions on their site and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No insurance needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. Hims has hundreds of thousands of trusted subscribers, so if ED is getting you down, it's time to change that. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash ride. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash ride for your personalized ED treatment options. Hims.com slash ride. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Recently, the world learned the power of artificial intelligence, a technology cybersecurity leaders have been leveraging for years. Now, as AI expands and evolves, those same security leaders are left wondering where humans fit into the next generation of AI-empowered security tools and solutions. Arctic Wolf, the industry leader in managed security operations, seeks to answer this question in their newly published report, The Human-AI Partnership access the insights of over 800 cybersecurity decision makers in North America and the United Kingdom to better understand how organizations are weighing the benefits and risks of deploying AI tools. Uncover the biggest obstacles to turning AI and human engineers into a formidable team. Discover why the near-term benefits of large language models are being upended by a crucial flaw in the technology. And learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. Got it. Interesting. And how much of this was all familiar to you guys beforehand? And how much were you learning live? I personally learned... Yeah, most of it I learned live. 
this was pretty new to me, but I'm sure other people are somewhat more familiar with it. Hmm. I think there was like I think that's a great thing. Yeah. Okay, I did I was just gonna say, I think there was like a mix. Um, we had a lot of people like tell us that uh, by contributing to the DAO, like it was their first experience with like Web3 or, um, you know, even being like a part of a DAO for the first time. But I think even among the core group of people, there were um, there were people who it may have been their first time being in a DAO or maybe had been in a DAO before, but not this involved. And I think that was my experience. Yeah, and, and I think Kyle is here. Maybe he can speak to, to his experience. I think you were saying, Kyle, that this is your first experience with the DAO, right? Yep, I was just about to chime in there and say, uh, yeah, this is my, my first big experience with kind of Web3 in general. So there's a lot of a lot of learning along the way, a lot of trying to figure out what it means to be a, a designer in an environment like that. Um, we've been talking a lot about like what kind of tools make a lot of sense and what kind of tools are most conducive to, to DAOs. And, and absolutely, Figma is... I've been a holdout on Sketch up until now, but you know, after using Figma for this project, I'm kind of kind of sold. Um, but yeah, I mean, like a big part of of my my own paradigm shift was just around how to operate as a designer, how to work and contribute to a product like this, because it's not like, even the de the decision making from a product standpoint is not centralized. And you're you're more so just creating tools for everyone else to generate memes or ideas around around this this idea and to to all make progress jointly, everyone needs to be empowered, empowered. And so that's, it really has been a pretty uh, game changing experience to work on this. And I'm definitely a, uh, all in now. So, so Kyle, one thing, so, uh, a lot of folks, obviously who, who listen to this show wouldn't know how I'm connected to each of you differently. And so, you know, I've, I've been friends with you in various ways, whether it's, you know, on Twitter or like, for example, Julian actually interviewed me, um, for on deck. And so he was the guy that let me into that, that community. And then Kyle, actually, I know through a totally different area, which is wine. And so actually I just like, I think to help the audience understand a little bit more about like this journey and how, you know, folks who maybe weren't even, you know, super into the web three world, you know, got involved in this, got pulled in, got drawn in and were able to contribute. I like, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if you're willing, Kyle, I'd love to just sort of hear a little bit about kind of what you were doing before, what you were working on, the types of things that you're doing, you know, on a day to day with like your actual, you know, business and company, and then how you sort of got into this. Cause I think that migration, I think is where people are kind of, maybe they're crypto curious or they're kind of like web three wondering. And if you cross that threshold, like what was that experience like? I think for me, it was um, just getting really interested in the technology from just the perspective of, and you know, like you never necessarily want to take technology and try to figure out what nail you can hit with it. Uh, you know, take a look at the problem, figure out yep. what technology makes sense. Back but I was certainly, yep. yeah, <laughs> I was definitely interested in like, what's going on here. And if I can, you know, arm myself with that, with an understanding of that technology, maybe I can apply it to the work that I do. So, yeah, like you said, I, I, uh, I, I had started a company called True Wine and we had, we were just teaching, it was basically like Duolingo for wine, uh, not really adjacent to Web3 whatsoever, but just in thinking about different ways to handle course creation or like user-generated content, I was very interested in the ideas of, of things like knowledge as currency, of uh, learn-to-earn sorts of things, and, and just getting really interested in how to how to incorporate those things because I, I genuinely believe that that is a education in education. There's a lot of these problems that can be solved with these uh, web three paradigms. 
So I was just, you know, getting back into that. And that's what, uh, that's what caused me to you know, reach out to Julian and, uh, just try to pick his brain a little bit about what's going on in the space. And then, and then, yeah, one day he just, uh, you know, he sent me a link to a tweet with the, the two scrolls and, uh, and the rest is history. And what ultimately did you contribute? Like, uh, what were you doing? Uh, for me, it was design and, and the website, Got it. just front end stuff. So I was, um, again, like kind of fielding the different sorts of, uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of suggestions from the community kind of being the liaison between, uh, what kind of stuff was, was bubbling up from, uh, from the community and the, the kind of stuff that we put on the site. And it really was a, an interesting project to, you know, to not fully go for like a you know, clean, like Stripe website, but instead mm. to say like, Hey, this meme has really gotten us a long way. So let's, let's make sure that we're true to the community and true to who we are and keep the brand as something that has been kind of scrappy and kind of, you know, kind of memey, kind of funny, uh, something that's just sticky and, and can spread. And, and, uh, and yeah, it's just been, been great. So yeah, I've been uh, working on design, working on shipping stuff to the website and, uh, we'll definitely do more of that in the future. Cool. I have, I have, uh, two more questions. Um, and then maybe we'll wrap. Um, one of the questions that I have is really just about, I guess, trust and, you know, Kyle, for you to, you know, show up, I suppose maybe there was some preexisting trust or awareness, you know, when, when Julian reached out to you, but you must've had a bunch of, you know, volunteers and people who you didn't know and people who, you know, have, you know, pixel profile photos, um, or, you know, strange discord names and they're showing up and they're saying, Oh, I want to do something. Give me some ability to edit the website or do something else. Like that could really go badly. You know, if, if I take a look at all the spam that I get on discord, like there's a lot of, you know, bad stuff out there. What is the process for evaluating and knowing whether or not someone who shows up to contribute to a DAO actually is trustworthy is someone who should, you know, be given some, uh, you know, some power or the ability to, to do things. What is that process look like? I think that that's one thing that I'm definitely interested in is, uh, especially moving forward as we you know, begin to, to really get the government structure going and get voting up and, and up and running. Uh, it's been that, that, that balance of centralization versus decentralization, you know, the ideal version of it is that it is completely a meritocracy and all ideas are considered equal, but you know, when moving super fast and before everything is really set up, it is, I mean, the way that it was structured for us was like, I, I didn't even have right access to the, to the GitHub. And so I was creating pull requests and, and that was, that was just part of our process. And that was, like, it was like a traditional way of, of, you know, triaging different changes, different ideas. Um, and so it is, it's, it's, it's a really interesting challenge, I think. And one of the things that I'm, I'm definitely interested in learning more about, but, you know, just watching different groups of people pop up in the discord and start to contribute stuff. Like they'll just get to work, you know, to give them permission and they'll ship around, they'll, they'll show you their work and say like, what can I do to, to, you know, get this onto the site? What can I do to get this implemented? Um, and you just have conversations with them and really everyone is just so eager to, to contribute to it. And they all care so much. And that really comes across as the, you know, the element that, that lends credibility is just, you can kind of see how much time they put into it, how much they care, how much they're, they're looking to, to continue to put into it. And that, yeah, it's, uh, people will just pop out and surprise you in big ways. Got it. Um, was, was there any other, um, I guess, uh, what's the word? Um, I guess rewards or, you know, like a lot of things that happen in these, you know, both DAOs or like web three communities are around being rewarded with tokens or other types of, um, you know, ways to, I don't know, honor or, uh, you know, provide, 
a benefit for contributing. Um, was this more just kind of like, let's do this thing and let's like make it happen and worry about it the rest with there's one goal and like, let's get that goal done. Or was there um, thought about uh, that other side of, of incentives essentially? Yeah. So our, our attitude, Chris was, you know, this is something that we probably should figure out eventually, but really the mission was the most important part. So yeah. Uh, once we have, you know, voting and everything fully set up, that's up to the community. If there's, if there's rewards retroactively and rewards going forward, uh, I expect going forward, you know, once we have the DAO set up and we want more contri- community contributors, we're going to have to figure out a reward system. Um, so, you know, it's something that like came up, but we were all like, you know what, like guys, this is the least important thing right now. What's really important is we get this thing done. And everyone's attitude was, you know, even if we don't get this thing and have to return everyone's money, like, who cares? You know, we still did something really incredible um, and we're able to inspire a lot of people. Totally. Yeah, I'll, I'll add that. Yeah. I'll add that it would seem it would seem potentially very disingenuous if we had said we were going to reserve, a, a you know, a token supply or something like that for the core contributors. Um, you know, that's what people do with, with a lot of projects and I think it makes sense. But given sort of the um, the nature of this almost being like a community charity project um, versus it being sort of like a, a venture where we were trying to make money. Uh, it seemed like it would be sort of against the spirit of it. And we thought that it would be much better to tell people that, hey, you know, if this, if we win, if we're successful or if this continues, please consider, you know, voting for a proposal in the future to, to award us some, you know, some tokens or something like that. Um, we thought that, that was just a much better way to do it sort of put our work up front and then if people appreciate it, um, sort of allow them to, to show that later on. Totally. Yep. Brian. Yeah. Uh, yeah so, Oh wait, Dan had something. Oh, sorry. Uh, I just wanted to say like, as doing, as I was doing like the social and community aspect of it, I got a lot of people who like made memes and stuff who were like reaching out to me. Like, do you guys have like a token reward system in place? But I think it was basically established that like, okay, we have one week. This has been like a mad dash to the finish. Like, we, if if you we will have a reward system eventually, but right now it's like much more important to focus on just like getting stuff done. And like, I would verbally congratulate everyone as payment for their uh, contributions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, now, Brian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and by the way, everybody, I think this this will probably be uh, last question ish. But uh, I have to ask it because we haven't brought it up this whole time. But. Um, you know, like like a villain being unmasked at the end of a Scooby Doo episode. I would just be curious on anyone's thoughts about uh, Ken Griffin being the guy unmasked as the winning bidder. I mean, to start, congratulations, Ken. Uh, you know, <laughs> like this is—it's really exciting. Where we hope that you do something great with this document and do something where. You know, you can do something meaningful for yourself, but hopefully also display it to the public. Um, you know, I think there's definitely a crypto narrative of, you know, fighting back against um, big finance. And him as the CEO of Citadel is a very cogent sort of uh, foil to what we've been doing. So, you know, I think, um, yeah, the, we, the fact that we were able to get so far, but uh, ultimately not win kind of shows that there's, there's a long way to go and lots to learn. and. Uh, you know, uh, Ken, if you're out there, would love to, to talk to you about the crypto world, uh, and teach you a little <laughs> bit about what we're, what we're working on and what this world is all about. I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll add really quickly to that, that, you know, it, 
we we drove the price up on this piece significantly. Um, this is a document that shouldn't have gone for forty three million dollars. Just you know, it, right? It, I think we, fair we spoke, fair value. Fair value was supposed people. to be about twenty million dollars, right? Well, it probably would have gone for over that, but, but right, right. It, you know, I, I we spoke with a lot of really smart people in terms of evaluating how much stuff like this is worth, and they didn't think that it was going to go anywhere near this. And so we we drove the price up. And it's worth noting that the woman who sold this, Dorothy Goldman, she is one of the leading donors to constitutional studies. Um, all of the money from the sale was going to be donated to a foundation. Um, that that supports constitutional studies. So we probably raised about ten million dollars more than had we not been in this uh, in this in this bidding. And also, we we got pretty much everybody to drop out uh, either because of the price or because they wanted to support Constitution Dow. There were going to be a lot more bidders, and it ended up just being two. Nobody else even wow. put a bid on the table other than us, other than us and Ken. So ultimately, I think we did a lot of good for raising money for an important cause. Um, we rallied a community that seems like a lot of them still want to continue, uh, and more to come on that soon. That's awesome. Um, okay. Well, I mean, if anybody else has anything else to offer or to add anything that I failed to ask that you think is pertinent, you know, now would be, uh, the right moment. Of course, also, if you guys want to point to any resources, uh, that you'd like people to check out now, would be a good time to share those as well. Um, and if actually for those of you who, who spoke from constitution Dow, if you want to just like say your name and then your Twitter handle, so people can find you afterwards, um, given that this is being recorded and it'll be shared shortly, um, that would probably be great for the listeners. Uh, yeah, sure. My name is Daniel. Uh, my Twitter handle is at sadly satisfying. Jonah. Hey, I'm Jonah. Everyone, uh, Jonah Ehrlich. My handle is at J I E R L I C H. Cool. Robbie. Yeah, I'm Robbie Heger at Robbie Heger. And, uh, you can follow along what endowments up to it at endowment.org. That's H E E G E R. And Kyle. Correct. Hey everyone, Kyle Billings, working on design here. Uh, Kyle underscore Billings is where you can find me on Twitter. Sweet. Uh, Julian? Yeah, I'm Julian Weiser. Um, my Twitter handle is at Julian Weiser. Uh, I've been trying to get at Weiser for a very long time. <laughs> so, my, so other than going to Constitution Dow and getting involved with the next chapter of Constitution Dow, um, please let me know if you can help me get access to at Weiser person <laughs> been dormant since 2017. I mean, come on, it's time. I think we have some tweeps, uh, on this, on this call that might be able to help you out. Um, well, by the way, uh, Chris, yeah. uh, and, and, and listeners, I have been screenshotting, hopefully everybody that spoke. Okay. So in the show notes, when this airs, if you're interested in following any of those folks, I'm going to hopefully have everybody's handles in the show notes. So you can okay. check that. Right. Cause we've lost a few folks, um, since then, um, and I still don't have recording of Twitter spaces yet, but if I did, then you guys would see all the amazing links that I've actually pinned to the nest, uh, related to this whole thing. And so I have a thread obviously on my profile. You can also check out. Um, but okay, Brian, anything else? No, that's it. Uh, you know, I just want to say congratulations, everybody involved. Yeah, <laughs> It was, it was a hell of a lot of fun. I watched the whole thing and you know, it really has been amazing what you've done. 
Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I really, I just, you know, from my perspective, I think this is like one of those watershed moments where, you know, there's been many, many sort of things that have been happening in the crypto world that are making it more and more accessible. But this is a story that I think touches on so many different, you know, people's perspectives and interests and the way to participate and how these things form and come together and the way in which Web3 is really about making the web a lot more participatory and inclusive. And so anyways, from that perspective, I was super excited to see this. Oh, I totally forgot to mention, but, um, I, I hunted the way actually that, that this, this conversation came about um, was Munam and Julian reached out or we got in touch somehow and they wanted to know if they could hunt Constitution DAO. And I was like, well, I don't know if you can actually hunt a DAO, but maybe. And so one of the things that they did and that we talked about was how the Constitution DAO is sort of creating a playbook for running other DAOs. And that was the thing that we kind of launched. And it turned out that that was my 3000th hunt. So I reached a milestone as well in this process. And I was excited to contribute in what little way I could to helping this thing get out there. And yes, I did also invest in trying to buy the constitution. So it was very exciting. All right, everybody, that's it for today. Thank you once again for joining for the Tech Meme Ride Home experience. And uh, we will talk to you very soon. All right, everybody. Thanks again. Bye, everyone. Ciao. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. Thank you.